Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Let's pray, church. Father, we thank you, God, for the relevance of that truth that Jesus is alive now. Or reigning in heaven interceding on our behalf even at this very moment, Lord. God, I give you praise because we have such assurance of that truth because of the death and resurrection of your son. And God, there's so much uncertainty in this world. There's so much suffering. There's so much hurt. There's so much pain. So many tears to cry. And yet, Father, we have this sure hope that Jesus is reigning, he's on his throne, that nothing happens apart from his hand. And God, I thank you that in a world that is so shaky, God, we have the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. God, not only that, we have the promise, Lord, that at this very moment, as you open up your word, God, you want to speak to us, you want to work in us. God, that as you speak, the powers of darkness flee. God, that Satan has no hope of any victory when your word is resounding in our ears. God, that the greatest evil will turn out for good for those who love you. And so, God, we give you praise as we open up your word for the assurance we have, Lord, that you want to change our lives as we see the glory of your son. And so, God, do just that. God, even now, would you find in this room hearts that are ready to hear you. God, ready to place our hope and our trust in you in a world that is so, so unfirm. And so, God, we commit ourselves to you. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab your seat. So good to worship with you this morning, to lift high the name of Jesus Christ, the only firm foundation in such an uncertain world. You guys can grab your Bibles. I hope that you have a copy of God's Word in you, whether paper or digital, because I have nothing good to say to you this morning if it's not from God's Word. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. I'm sure you woke up this morning and noticed something markedly different about this morning than other mornings. It was a lot colder. And I was going to warn you in this message anyways, and God decided to take the burden off my shoulders and to warn you just through the weather, but I wanted you to know that summer is coming to a close almost officially over. We're starting to dress in warmer layers. We're preparing ourselves for the coming of winter. And we're reminded again that the seasons are constantly changing. They're predictably changing, but it surprises us every time, doesn't it? The the summer comes to an end, and it's always a shock how fast it went. And as the seasons change, I'm reminded that life changes often, doesn't it? Not in such a predictable fashion often. We know when seasons will end. We know when seasons will begin. And sometimes we get to squeeze a little bit more summer heat out of summer. A little bit less of the cold winter out of winter. But for the most part, the seasons are predictable. But as you think about your life, in the same way we have seasons of high highs and seasons of low lows. But in many ways, life is completely unpredictable. I'm sure in your life there have been times where everything's going great. Seems like sunny days ahead. And then in a moment, it could be a phone call, it could be a text message, your world can come crumbling down. 
and you can barrel roll down the mountain of high highs into the valley of low lows. And this can happen in a moment. My question for you this morning, and as we open up First Peter, is this, are you prepared for the lowest low of your life? I wonder if you ever find your mind drifting to what life would be like, maybe if some sort of suffering were to enter into your life. Maybe it was the sickness of a family member or the loss of your job or something to do with your children. But you just wonder, man, I'm so thankful, you know, that this is here. But if this wasn't here, I wonder what life would be like. I wonder how I would feel in the lowest low of my life, in the deepest valley of suffering. I wonder how, what I would do in that moment. Often our response is surprise, isn't it? Whenever suffering comes into our life, often we're surprised. And really, I think that probably the, the most, uh, the reaction we have most often is this reaction of, why me, God? Like, God, why would you allow this thing to come into my life? Things were going so well. My life was going so well, and, and, and now this thing's in my life, and I just can't understand, God, why you'd allow this thing to happen. And we compare our plan for our life to God's plan and the way that our life is going and look at God and ask this question, why, how could you ever let this happen, God? Well, the church that Peter was writing to in 1 Peter faced this same temptation, this temptation to look at the suffering in their life and say, why me? And yet as Peter writes to them, and especially in chapter 1, praises them for the ways that they're suffering in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their valleys, we find that that doesn't have to be the response. In fact, Peter writes to the church, and look what he says in verse 3, to these people who are suffering, these people who are perhaps in the deepest valley of their life, the lowest low of their life, look what Peter says. He says, blessed be the God. Interesting words. Blessed, blessed, praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see in your text there, in verse 3, a little exclamation mark in the end of that sentence. I wonder if the church read these words of Peter in the midst of their suffering, in the lowest low of their life, in the deepest valley where they couldn't understand how they could go on in life, and heard Peter say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder if they thought, maybe Peter's reading the room wrong. You know, Peter kind of had this reputation, didn't he, of putting his foot in his mouth. I don't know if you know anyone like that in your life. You know, they're just not able to read the room. Like, my second daughter's a little bit like that. Like, it can be tyranny in the house. Everybody's crying. Dad's frustrated. Mom's frustrated. But there's my second daughter with the light of heaven shining down on her in her own little world. Nothing's bothering her. She's happy as a clam. This is the person who maybe laughs at a funeral or cries at the funny part of the movie. These people just don't read the room right. And as I look at Peter's words here in verse 3, to a suffering church, really the whole book of 1 Peter is about suffering. It's really a manual on how to suffer in this world that is filled with reasons to suffer. It's interesting that he starts with this praise to God. But God has a purpose for us this morning through his word. He wants to show us that in the deepest, darkest moment of our life, if we're gripped by the gospel, we can't help but have hope. Christian, this is your reality. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer of the gospel, if you are driven by the gospel, if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, you've believed in the gospel, the good news of all that has been accomplished for you by Jesus' death and resurrection, and I want you to know this truth, that if you believe in the gospel— when that gospel is the ruler and king of your heart, you cannot help but to have 
hope, even in the darkest, deepest valleys of your life. Hope oozes out of the heart of the believer, no matter the circumstance. Oh, I want to have this hope. I'm sure you want to have this hope. It doesn't pass me that it's very possible that in this moment, right now, you feel like you're in the darkest moment of your life. You feel like you're in the deepest valley. And you look at the things that are happening in your life and you just can't understand how they could ever happen. In this moment, I want you to know that God wants us to have hope. God doesn't delight in hopelessness. God delights in this moment to give us the hope that can only come from a heart that's gripped in the gospel. So Spirit, do it in our midst. Do it in our midst. We want to have hope. Well, the first thing we need to do if we have hope, Peter's teaching us this morning, is that we need to look up at God. If you want to have a heart that drips with hope, that oozes hope because it's gripped with the gospel, you need to look up at God. Look what, per, what Peter says after this comment in verse 3. He says that he gives this praise to God according to his great mercy— he has caused us to be born again, hear these words, church, to a living hope. To a living hope. And what Peter is doing in this very moment is pointing the eyes, our eyes, as we suffer in this world, filled with darkness and valleys and suffering, he's pointing our eyes to the source of hope. What God's doing this morning is saying to each one of you, I want you to have hope, and I'm going to show you the exact place to find it. Here's the goods. If you want hope, look here. Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. To a living hope. What Peter says is that if you're in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ, there's been this blood transfusion. Out of your body has been taken the hopeless blood of worldliness, of unbelief, and transfused into you has been this new life, this new blood that drips hopefulness. It's a living hope. Peter says we've been born again to this work, this, this living hope. Well, what's a living hope? What does it mean for hope to be living? Well, I think it means two things. Primarily, the first that it means, and I, I don't want to get too deep on you. You're going to think, oh, wow, this pastor, he, he's really smart when I say this. But in order for our hope to be living, it means that our hope isn't dead. That's pretty profound, isn't it? That's pretty deep. But for hope to be living, it means that hope must not be dead. And what Peter reminds us by pointing our eyes to a living hope is that in this world, there are many dead hopes. See, a living hope, what Peter sa says, is a hope that's alive. It's a hope that's certain. It's a hope that's sure. But contrasted to that are many hopes in this world that are foundationless, that are not sure. They're dead hopes. And in this life, we may be tempted to place our feet, try to found a find a firm foundation on dead hopes. Well, you think, what, what might be some of the dead hopes that I might place my trust and faith in? Well, the first is the dead hope of determination. See, when suffering comes into some of our lives, you know what we do? We decide we're better than this. We're not going to let this suffering, we're not going to let this valley get us down. And so through grit, we just decide we're going to get ourselves out of it. Money trouble, no problem, I'm just going to work more. Kids aren't following the Lord. That's no problem. I'm just going to make them read their Bible. I'm going to drag them to church. I'll get this kid saved. Relationship problems. We think that if we just work hard enough, we can change this person's perspective or life or character. You know, you know what you find when we face our 
trials and sufferings and valleys with the dead hope of determination. We find that there are problems in life that can be fixed. And there are problems in life that can't be fixed, aren't there? There are problems that are so much bigger than you that you stand before them and you just are without hope. There is nothing you can do to even try to remove your, this sickness from you, to even try to change this person, to even try to change your boss. It's impossible. It's a problem that's bigger than you. And so determination, it becomes a dead hope. But that's not the only dead hope we might place our feet on in the midst of suffering and trial. We might also place our feet, try to find a firm foundation on a dead hope of distraction. And so some of us, suffering comes into our life. Trial enters into our life. We hear news that is horrible, and we can't stop thinking about it. And so what we do in that moment is we just start distracting ourselves. We, we put on a show, and it's all good while we're watching the show. You know, we can watch a show, maybe laugh, and get ourselves sucked into a plot of a movie. Or we can read a book and distract ourselves for the time from our life and, and really how it's not going the way that we want it to. We can hang out with people and go to parties and, and do all these things to distract ourselves. But you know what happens when you distract yourself? Well, then in the moments where there's nothing to distract you, those thoughts, they start coming back into your head again, don't they? And in many ways, when we're suffering, we have no control over it. It seems like we're trying to get those thoughts out. We're trying to just focus on other things. We're trying to just ignore the problem. But we can, it's just hopeless because then we close our eyes at night. And, and in order to sleep, you really have to do nothing. You know, again, that's pretty deep. I don't want to get too deep on you. But you have to do nothing. And in that moment when you try to sleep, what happens? Well, these thoughts start trickling into your head. And I'm convinced that for so many of us, our sleeplessness is really a problem of hopelessness as we mull over the situation time and time again that we're in and wonder, try to think of ways that we could get out of it. And then during the day, distract ourselves so that we don't think about it. Determination's a dead hope. Distraction's a dead hope. But many of us also struggle in our times of trial and temptation by putting our feet on a dead hope of deliverance. And this one can be very spiritual. It can be a very spiritual hope. See, some of us cloud this this. Uh, dead hope in our suffering in this kind of spiritual language. We, when suffering comes into our life, we immediately turn to the Lord in prayer. But our hope in the suffering is not that God's will would be done, like Jesus taught us to pray. Our hope in suffering is that God would take us out of it. So something happens in our life, and we're brought into that valley, and our immediate response is to turn to God, and that's good, but our first prayer is, God, take me out of this. Just whatever you do, take me out of it. Deliver me from this suffering. Deliver me from this trial. And we have our hopes on, on God, but it's really this earthly deliverance. And then what happens is that for some grander purpose that we can't understand, God keeps us in that suffering, and we blame God. God, how could you do this to me? How could you not deliver me? I trusted you. You said that faith could move mountains, and I believed in you, and you didn't do anything. Because God doesn't want us, our hope, even to be in our own ability to deliver ourselves, or even in temporary deliverance on this earth, God's calling our hope to a better thing, a greater thing. In contrast to these dead hopes, Peter says our hope is living. Our hope is living because it's not dead, but there's also another reason that our hope is living. Our hope is living because our hope is in a person. Do you see it there in the text in verse 3? He says he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Spirit, give us this hope. But look what he says. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love that we sang these words this morning, but I find that we can sing them without 
believing them in our heart of hearts. These words that Jesus is alive. Church, think about this for a moment. In this very moment, Jesus is alive, physically reigning in heaven. This is who Jesus is. He died and he rose again with a new resurrected body. Do you remember in the Gospels that his body was touched? Thomas stuck his finger in the wounds. Remember in the Gospels that Jesus sat with the disciples and ate his physical body. And then what happened in the book of Acts, after Jesus returned to them and commissioned them to their work, he physically ascended to heaven, where now Jesus physically reigns. That's a truth that we can kind of intellectually ascend to without believing in the depth of our heart. Church, I need to ask you this right now. Do you believe that Jesus at this very moment is alive? I'm talking physically alive in heaven, reigning now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is the testimony of Scripture. The tomb that was once full is now empty. The door that was once closed is now rolled open. The hands of Jesus that were once woundless are now scarred by the nails. His lungs that were once collapsed now breathe life. Evil that was once reigning is now defeated. Death that was once sure is defeated. Pain that once stung us is gone so that your hope can be living. Because Jesus is resurrected, you have a living hope. It is alive in heaven for you. God is calling us this morning to take our eyes off these dead hopes, the dead hopes of determination and deliverance and distraction and place them on a living hope. This is really the battle of life. To take our feet off the foundationless hopes of this world and to place them on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. Off the foundationless hope that money could possibly deliver you from your situation onto the firm foundation of Jesus Christ off of the foundationless hope that if that person has just changed, if, if your boss would just change, or maybe you've got a new boss, or, or your husband or wife would just change, then your life would truly be happy, then you truly find satisfaction, and on to the firm foundation of the living hope that is in Jesus Christ. There's no other firm foundation. There's no other sure hope. Every other hope is a dead hope. Because Jesus is alive, our hope is living. It is sure. Our hope is breathing. Our hope is interceding this very moment for us. That's a living hope. I think about Stephen in the book of Mar- in the book of Acts. Stephen the martyr, do you remember him? Well, Stephen was preaching the gospel, and they turned on him, didn't they? And they quickly came to realize that they could grab Stephen and take him out of the city, but they couldn't grab the hope that Stephen had and take it out of him. They quickly realized that they could take Stephen's life Stone after stone, they would throw at him, but they realized that they could not take his hope from him. Stephen's hope couldn't be taken from him. Why? Well, it's in the text, because in the moment that Stephen's dying, he looks up to heaven, and he sees in heaven Jesus standing where he physically reigns. He's physically alive, and in that moment, Stephen's filled with a living hope, and he dies in the lowest moment of his life. I can't imagine he had any worse days than that day dies with the living hope that he is going to heaven. All because of where he looked. 
looked to the living hope. How, how do we get this hope? I mean, I can't imagine that I could interview anyone in here who I said, do you want a hope that's sure? Who would say, no, I'm not really interested in that. We want this hope. Well, look, it's right in the text. God tells us how to get this hope. He says that we have this hope according to his great mercy. He says he has caused us to be born again. God is the source of this hope. And God fills our hearts with this hope through a new spiritual birth, Peter says. This is a spiritual birth that we're told right here. Look at it in the text. It says, He has caused us. It's a spiritual birth that's initiated and caused by God. And what happens when you are born again by the cause and initiation of God is you are born to a new spiritual reality. Just as you have one physical birth, so in Christ you have one spiritual birth. So that the old is done away with, and now the scriptures say you are a new transformation. You are a new creation. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're a new person. The Spirit of God now living inside of you because you have experienced this new birth. You once were a children of wrath, but you've been born again so that now you are a child of God. You once were a sinner, but you have been born again so that now you are a saint. You once were condemned, but you've been born again so that now your identity is as of one who is cleansed of all their sin. All of this comes by the new birth that Peter tell, tells us God causes. And this living hope that we're seeking after this morning, this firm foundation we're seeking to place our feet onto, can only come through the new birth that God causes. And so we know that in our physical birth, we had no part to play with it, in it. We didn't do anything. We don't remember it. In fact, I talked to my kids this week because I was curious. One of my kids has an incredible memory. Puts me to shame. She definitely didn't get it from me. And I asked her, I, I said, do you remember being born? And she said, yes. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to investigate this one because I don't really believe you. And so I started investigating, asking, you know, like, do you really remember coming out of mama's belly? And she looked at me with the weirdest look on her face, like, what are you even talking about? Well, it's true, in her case, it's true in our case, that none of us had any part to play in our physical birth. And what the scriptures teach is that it's the same about our spiritual birth, so that Jesus says this to Nicodemus. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. The teachings of scripture are that it is God who causes our new birth. Now, even as I say this, I'm very aware that in this room there are probably many who struggle with this theology that it is God who does the work of our spiritual birth. That in order to be born again, it needs to be a work of God. In fact, this has been a debate that has raged in the church for 2,000 years now, where people have debated, is, is God sovereign over our salvation so that salvation is a work that he does, or is man responsible for his salvation so that in order to be saved, man needs to place their faith in him? For thousands of years, this debate has raged. Is it God who chooses us to be saved, or is it us who chooses God to be saved? Is it our faith and repentance that leads to eternal life? Or is it the fact that we were elected before the foundation of the world? 
2,000 years of church debate have raged over this question. And this morning I want to stand at this pulpit to tell you I have the answer to those questions. Is it God who chose us or us who chose him? Is it God's election or our faith and repentance? Is it God's sovereignty or our responsibility? And my answer to those questions is yes. Is that satisfying to you? Well, that's what the scriptures say. See, we don't have to choose between these two things because the scriptures don't. In fact, even in this verse, Peter's very content to say that our new birth is caused by God in verse 3. He's caused us to be born again. But then look at verse 9. Look what else Peter's content to say. He he says that you obtained the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is fine to stand on both sides of these debates. It's both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It's both God's choosing and our choosing. It's both God's election and our faith and repentance. Both of these things, by, by a mystery of God that I don't think we can completely understand, are held up in Scripture as true. I love the way that one pastor puts it. It's incredibly helpful. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he, he says that salvation is really like a man. We're standing in a room with a bunch of doors, and over one of the doors says, whomever so believes shall receive eternal life. So he walks through that door, and he looks over on the other side as he passes through the door, and he finds another banner that says, chosen before the foundation of the world. And you need to know, Christian, that your entrance into heaven will be the same. But on the one side, it will say that you chose Christ. On the other side, it will say that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Both these things are true. They have to be, don't they? See, if God was only sovereign, then he would be dragging people without faith into heaven. Like we do our kids out of the store when they're embarrassing us and yelling. And yet, we don't know any Christians who are like that. Like, have you ever met a Christian who's like, I really don't want to be a Christian, but here I am. That's absurd. It's not like God is sovereign without man's responsibility. But I also think the other can't be true. Like, it's not like people are going to get to heaven, and God's like, I really didn't want to save this guy, but he put his faith in me, so here he is. Both these things are true. God is both sovereign over salvation, and we're responsible for it. Now, don't ask me any other questions about that, because understanding the tension between those things is a lifelong journey. And I say that jokingly because I do believe that we can come to a deeper understanding of these things. And I do believe that you you can study this for your whole life and never begin to even scratch the surface of the revelation that God has given to us concerning him. But I do say that to to say that we require a childlike faith to say that God God can say two things that in our mind we can't make sense of, but they can be true. Because you're not God, and God is. And the ways that God works are mysterious to us because we are his creature and he is the creator. Well, the response to this theology that God is sovereign in salvation is often then, well, how could God choose some and not others? That seems kind of unfair, right, for us to stand in here and if you're in Christ to say, you know, God chose me. I'm something special. I must be something wonderful because God chose me. And I want to just take that thinking out of your mind, okay? It has nothing to do with you. Your salvation is not by your merit. It's actually in this text. You know what God's standard for his choosing will is? You know what God's standard for election is? Look at it in the text with me in verse 3. It's his great mercy. It's his great mercy. If God were to save according to merit, then nobody would be saved. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says that our righteousness is like filthy rags when it comes to God's choosing. He doesn't take our righteousness into account. 
fact, you could probably make an argument, and Paul does this in 1 Corinthians, that he chooses the weak in order that his name may be glorified. It's because of his mercy that we are elected to salvation. And I wonder if you're here this morning and you're questioning the mercy of God. You know in this moment your own sinfulness. You know in this moment the holiness of God. And you question, could God ever forgive me for the things I've done? Could he ever forgive me for the depth of my sin? For the thoughts that I've thought, for the actions that I've pursued, for the ways that I've disobeyed and dishonored him? And I need you to look at this word because there's so much hope in it that we're not born again according to regular mercy. Do you see it here? We're born again according to his great mercy. Church, his mercy is an infinite mercy. No matter how deep your sin is, his mercy goes deeper still. I love what Martin Lowe-Jones writes about this. It's so helpful and it's going to come up on the screen. He says, I've met men sometimes who have said to me that they know they are beyond hope that they have sunk so far into sin and iniquity that nothing can save them. My reply is just this, that the gifts of God are infinite gifts, and that were you ten times worse than you already were, already are, God could still save you and do so without realizing that his resources had been called upon at all. Church, God's mercy is so much greater than your sinfulness. It's so much deeper than your sinfulness. And so look up at God. Look up at God and find the source of living hope. But the next thing that Peter calls us to, if we're to have hope, is to look forward to what's coming. We look up at God and then we look forward to what's coming. And so look at verse 4. He says that we look to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now this inheritance language is incredibly meaningful for anyone who's familiar with the Old Testament, especially for the audience that Peter is writing to. For them to hear that they have an inheritance is incredibly significant. Look up at verse 1 with me and look at how Peter defines the church that he's writing to. It says in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Peter identifies this church as exiles. And immediately in the mind of this church, when they, when they heard that the Apostle Peter is looking at us as though we are exiles, their mind would go to the Old Testament, to the two times in the history of God's people where they were exiled from the land. To be exiles, to be taken out of the land that God had promised you, it is to be a stranger to your homeland, it's to be a foreigner. Some other uh, translations actually say that this is to be an alien. And so go home and say that. I'm sure that will make the front... Uh, page of the newspaper, local pastor at Newmarket says we're all aliens. Well, that's what the scriptures say. What Peter is saying really is that you are a stranger in this world. This is not your home. And the people of God understood that in the exile. They stood outside the land looking in, understanding that all of God's blessing was in that land. And they longed to be back in the land where God's promise would be given to them and delivered to them. Not only would they think that, someone who is familiar with the Old Testament Scripture would recognize that the word that Peter uses here for exile in the Greek version of the Old Testament is the same word that Abraham uses in Genesis 23, verse 4. And in Genesis 23, verse 4, after the death of Sarah, Abraham has been promised the land. And he's on a journey. He has no idea how long it'll take. He's just trusting faithfully in God's promise that he's going to be given the land that was promised to him. 
and yet on the way his wife dies, and so he's, he, he's looking for an inheritance, just a little plot of land to bury his wife in. He's saying, God, just give me a little bit of the promise. You've, you've promised to give me land, and I trust in your promise, but I need a place to bury my wife. And Abraham says this in Genesis 23. It's going to come up on the screen in three. Here we go. It says, he says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner. And that word foreigner is the same word that Peter uses for exile. Foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of sight. What Abraham says is, I'm a stranger. I have no home. I just want a little piece of land. I just want an inheritance. And the contrast for the church that Peter's writing to is significant because they look back to the people of God that were just looking for an earthly inheritance that they'd never actually received. And Peter takes their eyes off the earthly inheritance and says, look at heaven. There is an inheritance that will never be taken for your, from you. It's yours already in heaven. It's nothing like the earthly inheritance. It's a heavenly inheritance. The Old Testament people longed for a piece of earth. They longed for a, a, a plot of land to create heaven on earth. And Peter looks at the New Testament church and says, your home is in heaven. You're an exile here. You're a stranger here. But your inheritance, your land is in heaven, kept for you. And many of us need to hear this because in, in the especially in the suffering in our life, but even in the good times in our life, so many of us are trying to create heaven on earth. So many of us spend our days trying to build up an inheritance for ourselves, something that will truly satisfy us. And so we think may, maybe it's our home and we try to make heaven of our, as our home as though these walls can really keep out the evil from outside. And so if we just get home, you know, after a long days of work, if I just get home, then I'll truly be satisfied. Some of us try to make heaven out of our accomplishments. If I just do a little bit more, if I just get that next promotion, if I just make that next investment, then I'll truly be satisfied. And yet we realize that all these things are unsure. And what God's calling us by his mercy this morning to do is take our eyes off what's unsure, take our feet off foundations that aren't firm, and place our eyes what, on what is sure. Place our feet on the foundation that is firm. Peter says this, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have an inheritance in heaven. And look at this inheritance. Peter says it's imperishable. It's imperishable. Earthly things, they perish, don't they? Earthly things, they, they go away. You think about your investments in the stock market. You make an investment, you have an inheritance sitting there, but what do you do? You fret. You check it. And as you check it, it rises and it falls, and so you kind of emotionally rise and fall with it. And in these days, as we talk about suffering and, and your stock portfolio, probably a lot more falling than rising. Because it's an investment, it's an, an inheritance that's not imperishable. What Jesus says about your inheritance in heaven, your place in heaven, is that it is imperishable. It's 100% perfect at all times. It never falls because it's already all that it could ever be. And so you go to your heavenly stock advisor, Jesus, and you say, Jesus, what's, what's my heavenly portfolio? And Jesus says, it's still perfect. You don't need to check anymore. It's always going to be perfect. You come back the next day, what's my portfolio? It's still perfect. It's always perfect because this investment, this inheritance is imperishable. 
Peter goes on, our, our heavenly inheritance is also undefiled. It's without sin. It'll never let you down. Reminded that so many of us put our hopes in people, thinking that they can deliver us. And yet don't we find time and time again that people let us down? Every once in a while in my life as a pastor, I get the privilege of sitting down and doing premarital counseling. And I get to look at these newlyweds as they look each other in the eyes. And their lives are filled with such dreamy hope. You remember those days? Those of you who are married, and life is going to be perfect. They imagine their life after the honeymoon. They're running through a field of flowers and rabbits are hopping and beautiful, happy music is playing. And I get the privilege of telling them that that won't last long. I get the privilege of telling them, look in the, in the eyes of that man you're sitting across and remember that he is a defiled sinner, that that man will let you down. Right now, you have not even seen that guy eat a bag of Cheetos. And the first time you do, you're going to be so disgusted, you're going to wish that you never entered into this permanent marriage. They're going to let you down. They're going to sin. To be married is to be, is for two sinners to say, I do. But you, do, you think you'll, do you think you're going to get to heaven and see the inheritance that Jesus has prepared for you? You know, Jesus said to his disciples, I go and prepare a room for you. You think you're going to get to heaven and go, ah, Jesus, I don't know if I would have picked this carpet. I don't know if I would have done the walls this color. Some of you guys are like, yeah, I'm an interior designer, so totally that's what I'm going to be doing. Let me tell you this. The inheritance is never going to let you down. When you place your eyes on the hope that is in heaven for you, you will never be let down because it's undefiled. Not only is it undefiled, it's unfading. It's unfading. It'll never go away. It'll never rust. It'll never rot. I'm reminded that so many of our earthly hopes are so fading. You think about that new car that you got. It's amazing when you're sitting in it on the lot, isn't it? It feels so nice. The leather smells so fresh. And then you drive it off the lot, and it loses anywhere between 10 and 30% of its value. And immediately the value's faded. Not only that, you look across the street, and you realize there's a newer model that you didn't know about. You get that new phone, it gives you so much joy, but the first time you open up that phone and unlock the screen, it goes to an Apple announcement that the next newest phone is being released and your phone is now old and dated. It's not our inheritance in heaven. Our inheritance in heaven is unfading. It will never depreciate in its value. This is so good. Church, Christ, Christ in this moment, he is inviting you to a deeper, greater hope. He's not, not to beat you up, but to lift your eyes off the things that you might be placing them on this world and to show you a better way, a greater hope, a living hope. Now, where is this hope? Well, look what it says in verse 4. It says it's kept in heaven for you. This hope is living, and it's an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you. So if you want to see it, then you need to look forward to what's to come. This is why Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples, he, he says, don't fear man. See, man, they can only take your life. And some of us are like, that's a lot. But Jesus says, man can only take your life. But you know what they can't take? They can't take your soul. And this is exactly what Jesus is alluding to, that your suffering, you may not be, in, in an earthly sense, delivered from your suffering. But in the spiritual, eternal sense, you are delivered from your greatest suffering. Your greatest enemy is defeated. And you aren't promised a life that is fine and dandy. You aren't promised a life that is free from suffering, but you are promised that your greatest enemy is defeated. 
So Peter says, look, take your eyes off these things that are unsure. God didn't promise any that he'd deliver you from that suffering and put your eyes on what is sure, the fact that because of Jesus Christ, you have an, a heavenly inheritance. This is so beautiful. It's such good news for us because on that day when we stand before the Lord and we look at God, do you know how much all the things that you have accomplished and accumulated in this world how much, how valuable they'll be to you? Zero. The person with the longest list of accomplishments, Tiger Wood himself, LeBron James himself, some painter who painted a lot of pictures just so I can get out of the sports illustration, themselves. Those people will stand before the Lord, and sure, they did a lot of things that impressed a lot of people, but did they live in a way that impressed the Lord? Did they store up for themselves anything in heaven? They may have accomplished much on earth, but they accomplished little in terms of eternal value. And you need to know that by faith, the biggest loser on this earth becomes the biggest winner in heaven. This inheritance is given to them, kept in heaven for them. How do we get it? Well, look at what Paul, or sorry, Peter says in verse 6. He says in this, so, sorry, verse 5, he says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The way that we get this inheritance is through faith, by believing in Jesus Christ. That's all that it takes. So many of us come to Christ thinking, okay, I'm going to have to accomplish a lot for Christ in order to get this inheritance. And what Jesus says to us is that it is not what you do. It is everything that I have done on the cross. You place your faith in me, and I go to prepare a room for you. The inheritance is yours by faith. Nothing of what you do all by faith, that you believe that Jesus Christ has won it for you. And so this is what we do. We look forward to what's to come and look at the consequence when we do this. Peter says, in this, he, he's speaking to the church, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. See, when our hearts are locked, sorry, when our eyes are locked on heaven, our hearts are filled with praise. When your eyes are fixed on heaven, it doesn't matter what's happening down here. It doesn't matter how uncertain this world is. It doesn't matter how much your circumstances change and shift. Your stock portfolio doesn't matter. The newness of your car doesn't matter. Your house doesn't matter. Even the relationships don't matter because your eyes are locked on your heavenly inheritance that is sure, unfading, imperishable. That means that whenever your eyes are locked on this heavenly inheritance, you are promised joy. This is why the church rejoices, because their eyes aren't on their circumstances. Their eyes are looking forward to what's ahead. So that Peter says, in this you rejoice. Yet so many of us in suffering, how do we react? How, many, how, how do so many of us react? Well, suffering comes into our life, and what do we do? We get angry. God, how could you let this circumstance happen? We get anxious. God, God, what are we going to do? How are we going to make it through this? We get bitter. We get depressed. Because our eyes aren't on our heavenly inheritance. Our eyes are on our earthly circumstance. And whenever your eyes are on earthly circumstance, you can never have a heart that's filled with joy unless your earthly circumstance is going well. It's completely dependent on how things are going in your life. But, but isn't life so unsure? Don't you feel like in this world right now, we're kind of at like this boiling point? 
where things among nations and even among our people as a country are kind of at this, this tension where it feels like the band is about to break. And nothing feels sure. It never does, but I especially feel that today it doesn't. And I'm sure you feel that too, that we're kind of at this boiling point. But Peter's calling us to look to something more sure than current news, current relationship of the nations, current post on Twitter. He's looking, he's asking us to look at, at our heavenly inheritance and receive the joy that comes when we see what is sure and can't be taken from us there. See, anytime you look at your circumstance, your heart will be filled with anger. God, how could you ever do this to me? Every t- but, but, but then you look at God filled with joy because you realize that he's given you something so much greater than what that d- circumstance could ever give you. You look down, filled with anxiety. God, how are, you, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? You look up, you realize that what you need has already been given to you. You look down, you're depressed at what you don't have. You look up, you realize that you have everything in heaven. So Christian, look up. Look forward to the things that are coming. This is the promise to you. When we look forward, we're given rejoicing. And so my question is, what, what kind of fuel do you want to put in the tank of your heart? You want to put the fuel of anger? Look down at your circumstances. You want to fuel anxiety in your heart? Look down at your circumstances. You want to fuel depression in your heart? Look down at your circumstances. But listen, if you want to fuel your heart on the heavenly fuel of joy, look up at heaven. And this is the promise that God siphons rejoicing into your heart. You cannot help when the heart, your heart is gripped by the gospel and you're looking forward to the inheritance. You cannot help but rejoice. Well, why? These are all just empty words if we don't talk about why. Because look at what Peter says in verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith... Sorry, sorry go back to verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. Church, can we pause on those words? What bright hope those two words need to give to your life this morning. Every trial, every suffering, every valley. Look at those words. If necessary. This is the nature and compassion of our God, that he does not put his children into trial unless it's necessary. So Peter goes on here to, say, to, to kind of give us an illustration of what trials are. In verse 7 he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, what Peter is doing is saying, your life is kind of like a precious metal. It's like gold. And when gold gets put into the furnace, the furnace gets really hot. So hot that that gold starts to melt. And you know what happens is, is the impurities in the gold rise to the top. And the blacksmith takes the, go- takes the impurities off so that the gold is purified. And the gold comes out of the furnace more pure. Peter says that when, when the Christian is in the furnace, he comes out to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Christian, understand this, that every moment that you have been in the firm- furnace, it is necessary. It never happens by God. God never accidentally locks the door on you and keeps you in there for too long. It's all necessary. For his glory and for his honor and for his praise, he puts you in there. And you're in the furnace. And I love what Warren Wearsby says. He says, when God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock, his hand on the thermostat, and his loving heart knows how much and how long. And Christian, you need to hear this truth, that the suffering that you're going through right now 
is not without purpose. That you can look out of the furnace, of the, the window of the furnace, and see the eyes of Christ with his hand on the thermostat, tears welling up in his eyes as he knows that this is so necessary for you to endure so that you may come out purified to his praise, to his glory, and to his honor. And so we trust God in our suffering. We trust that he's working it according to a greater purpose, which leads us to our third and final point, and really in closing, that when we look up and we look forward, we can look now at the developing outcome. The writer says that when you do this, when you have a perspective change, your circumstance actually changes. It's only once we've looked up at God and looked forward to what's coming that we can then truly understand our perspective our, our circumstance with the proper perspective. So in verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I think Peter's showing us as a church how God practically gets glory from your suffering. Because when you suffer and your eyes are looking up at God and looking forward at what's to come, your heart starts to fill with this love. Your heart starts to fill with this joy. And Peter says that it's a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. The suffering that you endure, the world cannot understand. It's inexpressible. And it comes from a person that you love that they cannot see. In fact, the world can't understand suffering at all, can it? Especially in the prevailing worldview of uh, naturalism and evolution that believes that we're here by, not only here by chance, but that everything is supposedly evolving to a better place. And in that worldview, suffering can never be good. Why? Because it happened by accident. This is why one of the most popular sayings about suffering is that you were just dealt a bad hand. As though there's no divine ruler over creation, as though there's no purpose in suffering. It's just random chance, and hey, I'm sorry that you have to go this you, through this. You were just dealt a bad hand. Just bad genetics. Not anything you have control over. And so suffering can only ever be bad. Not only that, suffering is looked down upon because if, if we're just evolved apes, then we're supposed to be getting better and better. But suffering's actually worse. Suffering's a step backward. And when you suffer with joy, when you rejoice in the deepest valleys of your life, you show the world a glory that, that is inexpressible. You show them a joy that can't be understood. It's totally against everything that they understand. As I think about this suffering, and as I prepared this message, my mind went time and time to Dave Locke, who, as many of you know, was diagnosed recently with lymphoma. And I've talked to Dave every week for the last four months, probably five months now, and, and every time I talk with him, I'm so impressed at the way that if you have a living hope, you can suffer. It's, it, it's just, it, even to me, I know Christ, and, and it does not make any sense to be able to face potentially a life-ending diagnosis, and yet to be able to face it with such joy, to be able to face it with such certainty. And so I asked Dave to share just an update with us and I just want you to watch this and be encouraged, but also recognize that, that this can only come from a place of living hope. Let's watch this together. Hello, church. It's great to be with you, even on video. I know that as you're watching me, I'm watching you on live stream, which I do every week, and praise God for that. For what I see and hear about what he's doing in the church. It's great to be with you. 
therapy process. I had my first chemo a few weeks ago, and the second one is coming up this Wednesday. That will be the second of six every 21 days, which takes me into December. So God willing, I will be with you again in early in the new year. Right now, I'm feeling really good. I've had no real adverse side effects from the round one of chemo. I've been able to ride my bike and exercise every day and do light weights. My wife has me on a very great and strict diet with great cooking, so I haven't felt actually this good in many years. So I praise God for that. Praise God that your prayers are being answered about adverse side effects. And uh, pray that continues. I'm pretty sure that the little hair I came into this with will, will be gone, and, but that's the least of my worries, and it will show the chemo's working, so that's okay. So I wanted to share a couple verses about hope and, and what God's doing. I would not have chosen this path as I near retirement age. This was not the plan at all to go through this process. But I'm on this path, and God's allowed me to be on this path. And I actually praise him for that. I would rather be on his path than my path any time. Proverbs 16.9 says, The man of the heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So again, I'd rather be on God's path through God's ways because it's so much higher. And because of this, I have hope, which reminds me of a short little story I was getting a CT scan about a month ago and I was in the preparation room and there was another lady there talking to the nurses and staff and she said that her support group had all wished her good luck. And that hit me like a rock. I thought, good, good luck. This isn't about luck, but how do you go through a process like this with no hope, with just good luck? And I was so thankful for my Lord and Savior that he is with me, that you guys are praying for me, and, and that the hope I have. Mark 10, 27 says, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So I praise God for that. The hope I have is just not hope of healing, but as believers we all have hope of our salvation truth of our salvation that no matter what we will be with God we are his children we have, we have an inheritance in heaven and he's gone to prepare a place for us what an amazing hope in our salvation with God all things are possible with God so I praise God I thank you so much for your prayers I really really appreciate them God is listening God is answering and I'm praying for each of you daily and truly appreciate you all Church, you are loved and appreciated. Church, the world has luck. The world's known luck, but it doesn't know living hope. And because of the work that God's doing in your life, you not only know it, but by your life you get to show it. And look at the outcome in verse 9. Peter says, attaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're promised this reality that we're going to get to heaven one day and look back and see that all the suffering was building something. It was making us ready for heaven, purifying us for the day that we would stand before him, that it was all worth it.
Let's pray together, church. Father, God, thank you for the promise of hope that you've given us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, we give you all the praise. Lord, it's a hope that can only come to us from you. God, we can't do anything to win this inheritance. Lord, you've got to give it, and you have freely given it by your Son, Jesus Christ, and through our faith. And so, Lord, we give you all the praise. God, thank you for the work that you've done. And I pray, Lord, that your work would not stop, but it would continue in our hearts. God, give us the faith that we just witnessed, a faith that can only come from a hope that is living and alive in heaven now, a faith that understands that, God, you've delivered us from our greatest enemy, conquer the greatest evil. You reign now in the most powerful way. The suffering we experience on this earth, Lord, it can do really nothing to us. But on this earth, we can lose our body, we can lose our possessions, we can lose relationships, we can lose money, we can lose dignity, Lord, we can lose all these things, but we cannot lose heaven. It's not kept by us, Lord, it's kept by you, and so we give you all the praise, God, thank you, and help us to hope in you place our feet on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, our living hope. God, we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.